we've all been hurt by other people. We've hurt ourselves and we've hurt others. And as a result, every single one of us ends up with some sort of hurt, hang up, or habit. But the question we all face is, where do we go from here? Well, that's what the book Life Healing Choices talks about. And it offers freedom from our hurts, hang-ups, and habits through eight healing choices found in the Beatitudes that promise true happiness and life transformation. This chapter is choice number three. And in the recovery acrostic, R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y, C stands for consciously. Consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Happy are the meek. Letting go, the commitment choice. A pet store delivery truck driver was traveling down the road. Every time he came to a stoplight, he would get out of the truck and grab a two-by-four. Then he'd run to the back and start beating on the truck's back doors. This went on for several miles, and nobody could figure out what he was doing. Finally, the guy who had been behind him pulled up alongside and just had to ask, What are you doing? This is only a two-ton truck, the truck driver said. And I'm carrying four tons of canaries. I've got to keep two tons of them up in the air all the time. (laughs) That's how some of us try to live our lives. We take desperate measures trying to keep our life's hurts, hang-ups, and habits up in the air so they don't come crashing down around us. We try so hard to keep up a good front, pretending that everything is okay when in reality we're struggling with real pain and real issues that we desperately try to ignore. Then we get stuck. We get stuck trying to keep it all together while our world is falling apart. We get stuck in unhealthy relationships and in addictive habits. We get stuck in grief or sexual relationships. We get stuck and we cannot get unstuck on our own power. And so despair sets in. We start feeling guilty about our behavior. We wish we could get out of our mess, but we can't. After a lot of failed attempts, we get angry. We get angry with ourselves and others. I should be able to change. I ought to be able to get out of this. But we can't, and our anger grows. Over time, our anger turns to the fear that things are never going to change. We begin to realize that our hurts, hang-ups, and habits are controlling us. And our fear eventually turns into depression. We start feeling sorry for ourselves and we become filled with yet more guilt. Finally, we give up and say, I can't change. I quit. The cycle of despair starts all over again. How do you break out of the cycle of despair? If you follow through on the choices in the first two chapters of this book, you're already moving out of this vicious cycle. You've made the reality choice where you admitted your need. You've also taken the hope choice, believing that you matter to God and that he has the power to help you. Now, 
you are ready for the commitment choice where you make the decision to walk across the line. You take a step across that line of decision, a step toward God that says you are giving it all to Him and a step away from the old way of doing it all yourself. If you haven't made this choice as yet, it will be the most important choice in your life, the choice to accept Christ. For others who have already chosen Christ, this choice will mean a renewed commitment to let go of their lives and give them over to Christ's care and control. Right now, Jesus is reaching out to you, waiting for you to step across that line and into his open arms. Scripture says, from the words of Jesus, Come to me, all of you who are weary and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Your life will be easier, your load lighter. You will have relief, release, and rest. You'll actually be rejuvenated. Jesus says, give me the control and care of your life and watch what I do for you. What an amazing deal. Why would anybody turn that down? Yet, many have heard this invitation before, but never walked across that line. Choosing to step across that line into Christ's care and control is the most important decision you could ever make. What's holding you back? What's delaying your decision to surrender your problems and your life to the care of control in Christ? It's been said that our choices determine our circumstances and our decisions determine our destiny. Here are five things that keep us from making this third choice. Pride, guilt, fear, worry, and doubt. Pride. Pride often keeps us from admitting we need God's help. This proverb, no one is respected unless he is humble. Arrogant people are on their way to ruin, presents a pretty clear picture of those who think we can do it on our own. Or a self-sufficient fool falls flat on his face. Scripture reminds us that happy are the meek. But many equate meekness with weakness. In reality, meekness and weakness are at opposite ends of the spectrum. In fact, the Greek word for meekness actually means strength under control. The word is used to describe a wild stallion that is tamed and taught to be ridden. That stallion still has all its strength, but now its strength is under control, ready for its master's use. God doesn't ask you to be weak, but he does ask you to lay down your pride and be meek. Meekness is surrender. It is submitting. It is agreeing to do what God wants done in your life. 
Maybe you're not ready to take this life-changing choice. Your pride may still be keeping you from committing your life and your will to Christ's care and control. Or perhaps you need a greater dose of pain. If that's what's needed, God may allow this to happen in order to finally get your attention. Number two that often prevents us from accepting God's help is guilt. We may be ashamed to ask God to help us. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt ashamed to look up? Our guilt can make us ashamed to ask God for help. Maybe you've tried to make deals with God. God, if you just get me out of this mess, I will never do it again. Now, you may be embarrassed to ask him for help, or you may think God doesn't know all the things you've done wrong and won't forgive you. You're wrong. He knows. Even though he knows it all, there is no sin that God cannot or will not forgive. He wants to forgive all your guilt. And that's why Christ went to the cross. Three, fear. Are you afraid of what you might have to give up if you surrender the care and control of your life to Christ? Fear takes many forms. Sometimes we're afraid to trust God. There's a story about a guy who falls off a cliff Halfway down, he grabs onto a branch, and he's hanging on for dear life. He can see 500 feet down and 500 feet up. He cries out, somebody help! Suddenly, he hears the voice of God. This is the Lord. Trust me. Let go, and I'll catch you. The guy looks back down at the 500 feet below and back up again. Then he calls out. Is there anybody else up there? Sometimes we turn to God only as a last resort. We're afraid to let go and trust Him. Right now, you may be hanging on to that branch for dear life, saying, Things aren't that bad. No problem. Really, I'm fine. No, you are not fine. You were just afraid of letting go and trusting Him. Sometimes we're afraid of losing control, but the truth of the matter is that we're all controlled by someone or something at all times. To some extent, you're controlled by the way your parents brought you up. You're controlled by the opinions of other people. You're controlled by your hurts you can't forget. You're controlled by your hang-ups and habits. Part of our control issue is fear of losing our freedom. But do you know what real freedom is? True, lasting freedom is choosing who controls you. When you give the care and control of your life to Christ, He sets you free. God said, I have swept away your sins like the morning mist. I have scattered your offenses like the clouds. Oh, return to me. For I have paid the price to set you free. Sometimes we're afraid of becoming a religious fanatic. Maybe you've been afraid to open your life to the care of controlling Christ because you think he might turn you into a fanatic, a religious nut. But Jesus does the exact opposite. 
He brings sanity where insanity has had its way. The Bible tells a story of a man who was filled with demons. He lived in the cemetery among the tombs and was so wild and out of control that the local people had tried to bind him up, but he was too strong for them. The demons tormented him. Like some of your inner demons may torment you. And he cried out day and night and cut himself with stones. It's interesting that cutting has resurfaced as a current destructive way to deal with inner pain. But when he saw Jesus, he walked across that line to him. The Bible says, When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him. He ran to meet Jesus and fell down before him. After Jesus called the demons out of that man, the people found him, sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. No, Jesus does not turn us into religious fanatics. He puts us in our right minds and makes us perfectly sane. So, what are you afraid of? What are you holding on to that makes you think, I can't let go? Is it a relationship, an ambition, a habit, a lifestyle? Maybe it's a possession. God's Word asks this. How does a man benefit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul in the process? For is anything worth more than his soul? When you make this third choice, you give up everything to God's control. God takes what you give him, he cleans it up, and he turns it around. He adds new meaning, new purpose, new significance, and new vitality to your life. And he gives it back to you in a whole new way. Don't worry about the specifics of what you may have to give up. If you focus on the specifics, you'll never make the greater decision which is taking the step toward a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just come to God and say, God, I don't even know what I don't want to give up. I just know I don't want to live this way anymore. I know I want my life to be under your control. God, here is a blank check. Here's my life. All you have to do is trust him. He We'll take care of the rest. Worry. Worry causes us to confuse the decision-making phase with the problem-solving phase. Consider the process of buying a house. First, you make the initial decision to buy the house. That's only the beginning. There are several more problem-solving steps that must be taken before you can actually move in. You need to go back to the bank and apply for the loan. You need to get an appraisal and complete the escrow. Then you have to contact the moving company and set up the utilities. All of this has to be done before you spend the first night in your new home. If you focus on the problems, the individual tasks involved in making your dream a reality, you may never make the decision to buy the house. Make the decision. Let God worry about problem solving. Doubt. Have you ever thought, I want to believe, but my faith is too small? If so, you need to know the story found in the Bible in Mark chapter 5. 
about a guy named Jairus. One day, Jairus came to Jesus with a need. Jesus, I know you can heal people, and my daughter needs to be healed. Jesus said, if you have faith, then she will be healed. Jairus was a honest guy, and so he told Jesus the truth. Lord, I've got a lot of doubts. I want to believe. Help me with my unbelief. Jesus said, that's good enough. And he healed the girl. Maybe you need to say this. God, I want to believe that you will help me with my life. Help me with my unbelief. You don't have to be or have a big faith to decide to give Christ the care and control of your life. As a matter of fact, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the who or what you put your faith in that matters. You can have a giant faith and put it in the wrong things like money and possessions and come up empty. Or you can have a little faith and put it in our big God and get amazing results. The bottom line is this. Don't let any of these five things keep you from making this third choice. Do not let your pride, your guilt, your fear, your worry, or your doubt stop you from committing your life and will to Christ's care and control. First, you make the decision. Then you go about solving the problems. Your decision? I open my life to the care and control of Christ. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know it's the right thing to do. So I'm just going to do it. Beginning to move forward. The Christian life is a decision followed by a process. All this third choice is, is asking us to make the decision. The process will follow. At the end of this chapter, you'll read the stories of Lisa and Charlie, and you'll see how their lives changed when they made the decision to ask Christ to take control of their lives. But for now, let's see what it means for you to step across that line and into the arms of Jesus. It all begins with a simple two-step process. You can easily see this process by comparing it to the strategy our military forces used in World War II in the, in the Pacific when they freed an island from the Japanese occupation. They used the same strategy on every island, and it worked every time. First, the planes would fly to the island that had been taken captive, and they would start dropping bombs and various explosives. This part of the strategy was called the softening up period. Many of you are in the softening up period right now. All kinds of explosions are going off in your life, sending fragments everywhere. You're saying, life isn't working anymore. And quite honestly, it hasn't been for a long time. You may have come to the point where you're saying, yes, I need something beyond myself. My hurts, hang-ups, and habits are softening up my pride, guilt, fears, worries, and doubts. I need help. I need God in my life. Phase two, establishing a beachhead. In the second phase, the Marines would establish a beachhead. It may have been only 20 yards deep and 200 yards wide, but 
they would get a presence on the island. By establishing the beachhead, had they completely liberated the island? No. The beachhead was just the beginning. It was from the beachhead that they began to fight the battles. Sometimes they would move 100 yards forward, and sometimes they would get pushed back 50. Sometimes they won the battle, and sometimes they lost. But everybody knew that once they had established a beachhead, total liberation of the island was inevitable. In the history of World War II, once the Marines landed and established a beachhead, they never lost an island. It was just a matter of time until the entire island would be set free. When you make this third choice, God establishes a beachhead in your life. The Bible calls it conversion or being born again. Does it mean that everything in your life is perfect? Absolutely not. But it means that God has a presence in your life. He's got a beachhead. For the rest of your life, He will be setting you free from your hurts, hang-ups, and habits, little by little. It's a process, but first you have to trust God to take care of you. He won't let you go. Are you worried that in this battle of life you won't be able to hold on? Don't worry. It's not your job to hold on. God will do the holding, and He won't ever let you go. God's Word assures us, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Christ, you are brought into fellowship with him. You become his. And even beyond that, you are marked with a seal, a sign to all that you belong to him. He will not let you go. You are his beloved child. We understand the protective feeling a parent has for his or her child. If you were to help your small child cross a busy street, you would grab hold of his or her hand. As you were walking across the street, your child might, as little children do, want to let go. But no matter how much your child wanted to let go of your hand, you wouldn't let go. Why? because you're a loving parent. There are times in your life when you might say, God, I don't think I want to be under your care right now. Sometimes you might want to take back control and let go of God's hand. But once we grab onto his hand, God holds on tight. He says, I'll hold on so you don't have to worry about it. I made the decision to ask Christ into my heart when I was 13 years old. When I went off to college, I chose to follow my own way. In fact, for the next 19 years, I followed the world's way. But no matter how hard I tried to run, how many times I sinned, or how many poor choices I made, God never let go of my hand. My way left me empty and broken. When I was finally ready to truly repent and surrender, God was right there with me. It was then and that I truly understood his unconditional love and freely given grace. Whatever God asks you to do, he will enable you to do. Just rely on him as he holds tightly to your hand. 
Scripture reminds us, God, who began the good work within you, will keep right on helping you to grow in His grace until His task within you is finally finished on that day when Jesus returns. Stepping across the line. We've talked a lot about making the choice to commit our lives and wills to Christ's care and control. Let's see how you do that step by step. Accept God's Son as your Savior. The first thing you need to do is admit that you need to be saved and accept Jesus as your Savior. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What does that mean? It means committing as much of your life and will to Christ as you can at this moment. Is that good enough? It sure is. Accept God's Word as your standard. Once you make the choice to commit your life and will to Christ, you have from now on a manual to live your life by. Some people say, this life is a test. It is only a test. Had it been an actual life, you would have been given an instruction manual to tell you what to do and where to go. What they're missing is that we do have an instruction manual. It's the Bible. God says it is your standard by which you evaluate life. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the faith and correcting error, for resetting the direction of a man's life, and training him in good living. 3. Accept God's will as your purpose. The first thing we need to say as we rise each day is, Lord, you woke me up this morning. This obviously means you have another day planned for me, a day with purpose. What do you want me to do with it? In the Psalms, David says, My God, I want to do what you want. Your teachings are in my heart. Inspired by David, you can say, God, I don't even have to understand everything right now, but I choose to live my life on your terms because you made me for a reason. You have a purpose, and I want to fulfill that purpose. And as you grow with God, His will becomes your strategy for life. Four, Accept God's power as your strength. This becomes your power statement. I can do everything God asks me with the help of Christ who gives me the strength and power. No longer do you have to rely on your own energy. God gives you his power to be all he wants you to be. Are you ready to step across that line? Jesus extends his invitation. Look, here I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling, and if you open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal as friends. Jesus is standing at the door of your life, saying he wants to come into your life. But he's a gentleman. He will not beat the door down. In this third choice, we need to open the door and let him in. And the key that unlocks that door is willingness. Being willing means changing our definition of willpower. Our willpower needs to become the willingness to accept God's power. 
We don't need more self-will. We've already tried to run our lives on our own, and it has left us broken and empty. Now it's time to exchange willpower for the willingness to accept God's power to run our lives. If you're ready to make this choice and commit your life to Christ's care and control, just answer the following questions. Do you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and proved he was God by coming back to life? Do you accept God's forgiveness for your sins? Do you want to switch to God's plan for your life? Are you ready to express your desire for Christ to be the director of your life? If you answered yes to those four questions, it's time to make your decision a reality by making the choice. Make the choice. Action one, pray about it. It's time to ask Christ into your life. You can do that by praying this simple prayer. Dear God, I believe you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins so I can be forgiven. I'm sorry for my sins and I want to live the rest of my life the way you want me to. Please put your spirit in my life to direct me. Amen. Congratulations. If that was your prayer for the first time, welcome to God's family. Please don't feel you need to understand everything about the commitment you just made. Understanding will come as you learn and grow. For now, let these words of Christ comfort you. And Jesus says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. There's more good news. What this means is you are no longer the same person you used to be. In fact, Scripture says, The old is gone, and the new has come. If you've recently asked Christ into your heart, use this prayer time to commit to continually seek after and follow His will for your life. Your new life has begun. Action 2. Write about it. Take some time to reflect on the commitment you just made. Whether it was your first commitment to Christ or a renewed commitment, to continually turn everything over to His care and control. Committing to Christ is the most important decision you'll ever make. You'll never be alone again. And as you begin your journaling for this chapter, try starting off by answering the following questions. These will help you organize your thoughts and your emotions. Here's question one. Back in choice one, write about it. Reread your answers to the questions one through three. 
Write about how you feel different about them today. Question two, how do you feel now that the burden of trying to control all the people, places, or things in your life has been lifted from you? Three, what does the following phrase mean to you? The old life is gone and new life has begun. Question four, what are some of the first things you'll ask God to do in your new life? Question five, what are you having a difficult time letting go of? What's stopping you from turning these things over to Christ's care and control? Lisa's Story, Stories of Changed Lives My name is Lisa. I'm a believer who is recovering from overeating and sexual abuse. I am also married to a recovering sex addict. This is my story of how taking the third choice of recovery to commit my life and will to Christ's care and control, accepting Christ as my Lord and Savior, has freed me from my past hurts, hang-ups, and habits. My parents split up when I was nine years old. My mom left in the middle of the night, taking nothing with her, including my brother and me. We didn't see her again for about a year. When we were reunited with mom, her new boyfriend abused me, both physically and sexually. It was not uncommon for me to see my mom being beaten by her men friends. I can remember the feeling of being totally helpless to stop it. Even when I called the police, she would send them away. Once, Mom even ended up in the hospital. I saw, I saw her and her boyfriends pull knives on each other and threaten to kill each other. While fighting with my mom, one of her boyfriends smashed an ashtray on the kitchen counter and cut his hand with the glass. He took me and my brother to our room and spread blood all over the door. He said that if he hurt us, or if we came out of the room, he would kill us. From our room, we could hear Mom screaming and crying. Then one day, while I was home alone with him, he molested me. I was 12 years old. After that, I began to shake any time he or any adult man would get near me. I frequently had horrible nightmares. I learned that love meant being abused and giving sex. I started doing drugs drinking and being promiscuous at age 15. I would do anything to try to stop the pain and to be loved by someone, anyone. I got married when I was 19 and that was the last day I saw my mom, not because she didn't approve of my marriage, which she didn't, but because she was murdered five days later. She was stabbed to death in her home in the middle of the night. Whoever did it set fire to her home in an attempt to cover up the murder. Today, more than 20 years later, her murder remains unsolved. It was undoubtedly a result of the many violent relationships my mom chose with men. My first marriage was short-lived but produced great rewards. My two sons, Eric and Jason. My husband was volatile and a periodic blackout drinker. He would call me in the middle of the night from wherever he was drinking. He would tell me to get up and leave because he was bringing his new girlfriend home. He was very controlling and told me what clothes to wear, 
how to fix my hair, and whether I could work or not. He would not allow me to have any friends. After our divorce, I stayed single for four years. I dated and chose to sleep with many different men. I became pregnant two times during this destructive period of my life. My way of dealing with the first pregnancy was to have an abortion. I gave my second baby up for adoption. I cannot begin to share the shame and guilt I felt over those two decisions. Today, I know the cost of my sin. The only way I can live with my past mistakes is through God's grace and complete forgiveness. My second marriage was worse than the first. I chose the same man, just a different name and face. He drank and did drugs, called me foul names, and frequently threatened to hurt me. I always thought I was doing okay because neither of my husbands ever actually hit me. I gauged the relationships by my childhood experiences, and they were no way near as bad as my mom's. I lived out my belief that love equals abuse and sex. I tried a new way to ease my pain. I found the joy of chocolate. My two new best friends were Ben and Jerry. In May 1992, I walked into Saddleback, a large church that met near my home. I was in the middle of my second divorce from an alcoholic, abusive, sexually addicted husband, and I had not been in a church in about 10 years. I don't remember what the title of the message was, but I do remember I thought Pastor Rick was speaking right to me. How did he know what I was going through? I cried through the whole service. I felt warmth and love from the church members. And after the service, I realized I had found my new church home. I had just met Peter, a guy who had a newspaper route at the same warehouse where I worked. He was cute, sweet, and made me laugh. We began meeting after, a, after our routes for coffee and donuts. I soon learned that Peter drank and that a wall in his room was covered with pornography. But by this point in my life, I thought all men were like this, so it seemed normal to me. Besides, I thought I could eventually love him enough to change him. I invited Peter to church one Sunday, and he agreed to go. He was very apprehensive because he had been raised in a legalistic Christian church. He had walked away from God long before he met me. At this point, he had really long hair and earrings. He smoked, drank, and there was the pornography. He was sure they would not even let him in the front door of the church. He was shocked to be greeted and welcomed, and he loved the church as much as I did. However, because we were living together, we eventually felt too guilty to keep attending. Peter decided we should stop going, and as his good codependent girlfriend, I agreed. It didn't take long for our relationship to become pretty miserable. I began to resent Peter's pornography and drinking. I was working two jobs while Peter worked part-time and took care of my eight and ten-year-old sons. He took them to and from school, cleaned house, and did the laundry. Sometimes I would come home from work and find that he had spent the whole day watching adult videos. My resentment and anger grew. I finally found a way to let Peter know how I felt. 
I made the choice to have an affair with an old boyfriend. I wanted to hurt Peter as much as his magazine girlfriends had hurt me. I had tried everything to be whatever Peter wanted in a woman. I even rented the videos for him. However, deep down I felt degraded and unloved. I was not pretty enough, thin enough, or sexy enough to compete with the woman in the videos. As our relationship continued to fall apart, we remembered Saddleback, the church we had loved so much. We knew they had pastors on call for counseling. We called and made an appointment. That weekend, we attended church again for the first time in about six months. Pastor Rick was doing a series of messages about recovery. A man gave his testimony about being an alcoholic and about how God had transformed him and saved his marriage. God had given him a vision for a Christian recovery ministry. He called it Celebrate Recovery. It had started at Saddleback about a year earlier. During this sermon series on recovery, Pastor Rick had people share how God was transforming their lives through Celebrate Recovery. By God incidents, my new word for coincidence, the man who gave his testimony that Sunday just happened to be the pastor on call when Peter and I came into the church office for help. His name was Pastor John Baker. We shared everything that had happened in our relationship and how we wanted to get married in the church. Pastor John was very compassionate and lovingly confronted us about the way we were living. He told us that if we wanted to get married in the church, we needed to stop living together. He said that we had to remain abstinent until after we were married. During our session, I talked about being sexually abused as a child. I also told Pastor John that there was a period of child time in my childhood that I could not even remember. John recommended that we both begin attending the church's recovery program and that I see a Christian therapist. The day before my appointment with the therapist, I had a conflict with Peter. We had been trying to be abstinent, but were still sleeping in the same bed. Talk about insanity. I woke up in the middle of the night with Peter not wanting to take no for an answer. The next day I confronted Peter and told him I thought he was a sex addict. I had heard about it on a radio program while driving home from work. All of Peter's behaviors fit the description of someone struggling with sexual addiction. Peter completely denied that sexual addiction was his problem. He just had a high sex drive. I remembered hearing that from my first husband, too. I asked Peter to go with me for my first counseling appointment. I told him I wanted him to come because I was afraid to go by myself. The truth was I had told the counselor that the only reason I was making an appointment was because my boyfriend thought I needed help, but I didn't. We arrived and I spilled out my whole life story to this sweet woman. She listened and showed so much compassion that I believed I could trust her. At the end of our session, Peter said, By the way, do you know anything about sexual addiction? It was her specialty, another God incidence. She gave Peter some material about sexual addiction and told him to read it. After reading the material, Peter admitted he was a sex addict and wanted to get help. He began attending 
secular sex addict meetings because the Celebrate Recovery sexual addiction group had not yet started. At Celebrate Recovery, he attended the chemically addicted group and began to get sober from alcohol. It took me a while to know I needed to attend recovery, too. I thought as long as Peter got fixed, he would stop being a sex addict and then we could get married. I believed the only problems I had were the lousy men I kept picking. My therapist recommended I start attending the Celebrate Recovery group for sexual abuse. I went under protest. Then I realized I could check up on Peter and make sure he was going to his group. I loved that idea. The first night I was petrified. I could not share. I was very shy and hated it when people would look at me when I talked. After a month or so of attending the group, a woman shared my life story through her own words. It was her life, but it was exactly like mine. I could not believe it. I felt like it was a sign from God that I was safe and that I could safely share too. I opened up for the first time. I told the women in the group about experiences I had never told anyone. I had believed these things were in the past and no longer affected me. The pain and tears were overwhelming, and at times I did not think I could continue. However, being a part of that group and sharing openly with these women was a life-changing event for me. They knew all about me and still love and accepted me. Within the next few months, Celebrate Recovery started a sexual addiction group. Peter began getting sober from his sexual addiction, as well as from his alcohol. We committed to being abstinent even though we were living together. Peter made a room in the garage and his mom even sent him a heated blanket so he could be warm out there in the winter. We quit smoking. But I was not about to give up my chocolate. One night we had an argument about continuing to live together even though we were being abstinent. Peter was still struggling with employment, and I did not think he was trying hard enough to get a job so he could move out. The argument continued late into the evening, and finally Peter stormed out of our apartment. He was so angry. I did not know what he was going to do. It was about 11.30 at night, and I was worried and angry. He returned home at 1 a.m., announcing that he would be moving out the next day. My first question was, what's her name? Peter laughed at me and said he had walked across the street to Saddleback Church. He went to the three tall wooden crosses that were on the property. One of them had the nails representing Jesus' death on the cross. Peter told me how he had sat there and prayed and cried. He wrote a list of all the things he wanted to turn over to God including his need for a place to live and our desire to get married in the church. He shoved the list on the bottom nail of the cross and walked away crying. Immediately, he saw someone and thought it was an angel, but it was the night security guard. He asked Peter why he was crying and if he could help. Peter explained our situation and the man said, I just rented a big house and I have an extra room. You can come live with me free until you get married. Definitely God incidents. And Peter moved out and we started premarital counseling at the church. We were married December 7th, 1994 at Saddleback. 
Pastor John, who had counseled us that first day, we came to church for help, performed our ceremony. Our whole new Celebrate Recovery family was a part of our special day. They provided the food for the reception, helped with the wedding decorations, and served in a hundred different ways. It was one of the most incredible days of my life. My sons were involved. Jason walked me down the aisle, and Eric was the best man. Peter said vows to them during our ceremony. There was not a dry eye in the church. For the past 13 years since our wedding, Peter and I have continued to grow in our intimacy with each other and with God. I finally realized that I that having true joy and peace in my life was not going to be found in sex, drugs, food, even chocolate, or any human man. I could only find it in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what the third choice did for me when I made the decision to consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Through my relationship with Jesus, I have been able to forgive those who abused me, ask for forgiveness from those I have hurt, and realize that Jesus forgave me on the cross more than 2,000 years ago. Now I can forgive myself and break my cycle of despair. I can live my life in response to God's grace, not in pursuit of it. I am forever grateful for what God has done in my life. He has given me a church family to love me, hold me accountable, and do this life together. Charlie's story, choosing choice number three, letting go, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. My name is Charlie and I'm a believer in recovery from sexual addiction, alcohol, and drugs. I grew up in a small West Texas oil town with devout Christian parents. Both my mother and father were involved in the local school system. They were also very involved in our church. They served as Sunday school superintendent and on the board of elders. At home, however, my mother was cold and unaffectionate. My father was a strict disciplinarian and used corporal punishment often. I used to hide in the closet when my father would rage about one of his disappointments in my behavior. I had two older sisters. When Linda, my oldest sister, was eight years old, she contracted an infection while hunting with my father. The doctor recommended a minor operation to treat the infection. In 1949, small hospitals in Texas did not always test for allergies to anesthetics. Linda was allergic to ether and died immediately, even before the operation began. Her death became the pink elephant in our house that no one was ever allowed to talk about. As the years went by, my mother silently blamed my father. He bore his shame and guilt deep down and treated Linda's memory as if she were a saintly martyr. Linda had been my father's favorite child. My older sister, Anne, who excelled in academics and intellectual abilities, was my mother's favorite child. That left me to take care of myself. In an effort to carve out a place for myself and the family, I tried making good grades. I made all A's and was an honor student. But one of my teachers, who had also taught my sister a few years earlier, told me in front of the class, Charles, you are smart, but you, are sure, but you sure are no Anne. 
Since excelling in academics was not enough, I also tried achieving acceptance from my father through athletics. I lettered in football, basketball, track, and baseball. My father had been a star athlete at Texas A&M University. No matter how well I did, his critique of my performance let me know that I once again failed to measure up. I got my growth spurt early and was six feet tall and 170 pounds in the ninth grade. I started dating high school girls and hanging out with the varsity football players. The football legends of West Texas seemed to always have a reputation for wildness, heavy drinking, fights, carousing around, and then setting records on the football field. I grew to find the acceptance I had always sought by having the prettiest girl in school as my girlfriend. Not only did I get validation from her, but also from everyone else. They seemed to think that I must be someone special to have her as mine. My junior year in high school, I got my girlfriend pregnant. I believed I was in love, and between her parents and mine, we convinced her to marry me. It was the only honorable thing to do. Although I was still in high school, I worked nights at a truck stop and weekends at a mobile home factory. One Sunday morning, I came home to find the house cleaned and a note from my wife saying that she had left the state with no forwarding address. She wrote that she had never loved me and that our child did not need a father. I was devastated by her abandonment. I then faced my new future and pursued sports once again. However, the school board had a rule stating that students who had been married could not participate in extracurricular activities. So my father helped me get into New Mexico Military Institute to play football. Before taking me to Roswell, New Mexico, my father reminded me of the consequences of my prior decisions. He said, you may be able to leave this town, but your mother and I still have to live and work with these people. Talk about shame and guilt. I was stuck in the cycle of despair. The Eagle, Spout, the Eagle Scout, an athletic hero, had just been run out of town on a rail. It was a military school that I chose to start smoking pot, using drugs, and staying drunk, all while maintaining a 3.8 GPA. Strangely enough, when I was high, I felt like I was finally in control. But when I sobered up, I felt like a true outcast. I did everything I could to live up to the reputation of a tough, wild football player you never want to cross or confront. No one ever knew when I would fly off the handle. I continued my quest to be accepted by my father by playing football at Texas A&M University, his alma mater. I continued my heavy use of drugs and alcohol. I injured my shoulder and knee in the beginning of my junior year and had to drop out of football. I had disappointed my parents once again. I then moved in with a girl from my English and theater class. She wanted an Augie football player, even an injured one, and I wanted someone to accept me and fix my life. We thought we both found what we wanted. We got married and had two children. After 10 years of living with an alcoholic and adulterer, my wife had had enough and we got divorced. Every time things went wrong, I blamed her and sought someone else to validate me. 
After this divorce, I went on to repeat the same pattern again with wife number three and child number four. All this time, I attended church faithfully. I was on the board of deacons, taught Sunday school, and lived a double life, one respectable and the other a dark secret. I thought I could hide my dark side from everyone else. I knew I could never live up to my father's performance criteria, so how could I ever really be good enough for my Heavenly Father's love and acceptance? In August 1997, I hit my rock bottom. As I drove my 1976 Ford LTD into Bakersfield, California, I blew out the engine at 3 o'clock in the morning. I sat in a flea bag hotel for three days, waiting to see if my only means of transportation could be fixed. Needless to say, I had a lot of time to look at my life. After years of making poor choices, I had no material possessions, three failed marriages, four estranged children, no job, no friends, no food, and no money. All I had was a lifetime of trying to fill the hole in my heart with sex, alcohol, drugs, pornographic videos and magazines, countless affairs, fast money, fast times, high-risk jobs, and living on the edge. All the things I sought to ease the pain, I came to realize only made things worse. I could no longer go on living this way. I could not bear the guilt, the pain, the shame, and the disappointment. I was a hopeless failure in my own eyes, and I thought in God's. I came to see my life as it truly was. I didn't believe it could get any better or any worse for that matter. When I found out that my car was a total loss, I called a man who used to work for me, who lived in Vista, California. I asked him to pick me up at the Greyhound bus station in Carlsbad. I had just enough for bus fare. By this time, I admitted I was powerless over my addiction and compulsive nature, and that my life had been, uh, become unmanageable. I contacted a therapist through my company's insurance program. He was a Christian who did wonders helping me see the roots of my addictive and codependent nature. I told Vicki, my new girlfriend, about my excitement in this new process. She told me about the Celebrate Recovery program she was attending. I didn't truly believe this type of program could help me, but if this was how I could get a date, then okay. I drove up from the San Diego I drove up from San Diego every Friday night for a year. A hundred and sixty mile round trip. At first I thought I had never seen such a collection of whining, warped, pathetic people in all my life. After all, there was not so much a problem with me, but just with the people and circumstances around me. Then the light seemed to come on. I had already been through a secular 12-step court-ordered program. It didn't work for me. I decided to give Celebrate Recovery a try. I got a sponsor, the Bible, and the Celebrate Recovery Participants Guides and really started working the program. After working through the first two choices, I was more than ready for choice three, letting go, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. I had tried it all and came up empty. I cannot begin to explain the freedom and the peace I experienced when I was finally able to let go and let God have control and care of my life. I opened my heart and my mind and allowed all the feelings of the pain 
of my past to come out. I learned to rely on Jesus to guide me through this difficult time. I analyzed my past honestly, letting the truth be the truth. My accountability partner was very important in helping me stay balanced. I still have a tendency to focus on my poor choices and beat up on myself. But with each passing day, I understand Christ's grace and complete forgiveness just a little bit more. I would like to say that everything is rosy in my life now, without trouble and pain, but it's not. However, today when those trials come my way, I have a different reaction to them. Because of the decision I made in choice three, all my life's joys, victories, trials, and hurts are now under Christ's care and control. He has restored my health, my career, the relationships with my family, and most of all, an intimate love relationship with Him. My 21-year-old daughter recently returned to college in Las Vegas. We communicate regularly through email and phone calls. I was able to console my oldest son, Jason, when his mother died of brain cancer just a short time ago. He is now on his second combat tour in Iraq as an army officer. My son Scott has spent time with us in the summer for the last two years for his birthday. God has reconciled my relationships with my parents. After years of working in the semiconductor industry, I now have a wonderful job implementing Celebrate Recovery in a drug and alcohol treatment center. My identity is no longer in what I do for a living, but in who I am. I am God's child. God has shown me that He will protect and provide for me. My faith is now in Christ and no longer in my own abilities. I continue to fill my life with God's Word and God's people instead of self-destructive patterns and behaviors. By God's grace, I have led several Celebrate Recovery Step studies, helped with the men's codependent group and the prayer team, and have had the honor of serving at the Orange County Rescue Mission. God has put incredible joy and peace in my life. I would like to thank that girlfriend, Vicki, who brought me into this program when I thought I didn't need it. She is now my wife. I thank God for teaching me that to have the gift of recovery, I must give it away. I will always be thankful to the men of my group who are the first true Finns I ever had, who know all there is to know about me and still like me. My greatest thanks goes to God, with whom I now have an intimate love relationship that is real and personal. I know I cannot use imperfect parents as an excuse for not living up to God's standards. None of us are perfect in the way we parent. Today, I do have a perfect parent who is teaching me how to be loving, forgiving, and patient, just like Him, my Heavenly Father. I would like to close with one of my life verses. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children.